One of the burdens that I certainly have as a pastor of this congregation is not only to bring you messages, but also to help you in your own studying of the Word of God. And so I've said this before, and I'll say it many times in the future, it's vital that as you sit under the Word of God week by week, that you learn tools to help you study the Word of God in your own homes. That you have, again, the mechanisms required to make proper interpretations of the Word of God. We did this morning, I trust by God's grace, seeking to analyze the Word of God in a way that you can do the same in your own study. Well, well, so it is tonight, and so I want to begin tonight by really giving you three, what I'm terming, interpretive pointers when you come to this passage. And these are things that are true in general, but perhaps particularly true for the Apostle Paul. And certainly the third one is absolutely the case when you think of the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. The first thing, though, when you come to any passage, is that it is very, very helpful to remember the main issue. Now, of course, the main issue in Romans is the gospel. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. It is the part of God and his salvation to the Jew first and also the Greek. But yet in that context, when you get to chapter 9, what's the, what's the big deal in chapter 9 through 11? Well, the main issue there is, well, what about the Jew? Now, we've seen the gospel at Romans 1 to 8, being effective, eternally effective, in both Jews and Gentiles, to those who trust in the Lord. But what about the widespread rejection by the Jewish people? Again, we've noticed again back in that theme verse, look back in Romans chapter 1, again the verse number 16, the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But we're seeing the gospel going across the Greek world But what about the Jewish people? By and large, there's been wholesale rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, as their Christ. And that rejection is in the context of such privilege. We saw those privileges, uh, didn't we, in the early verse of chapter 9. You see verse 4 and 5, the listing of all of their privileges culminating in the coming of Christ. According to flesh, a Jewish Messiah for the Jewish people. So the question comes in verse number 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. What's the main issue? The main issue is what about the unbelieving Jew? What about those national Jews who have rejected the gospel? Can it then be charged that the word of God is ineffective? That the promise is not sure? You see, the the words there, non-effect, in verse number 6, They actually come from a verb to fall away. And the sense is, well, has the promise of God fallen from its intended purpose? That's the charge. God has purposed to call Israel as his people, but now they're rejecting his Messiah. Well, therefore, is the word of God, has it fallen away? So when interpreting this section, you have to have as an answer in your interpretation an answer to the question, does Jewish rejection of Jesus mean that God has allowed his covenant promise to fall? When you think of this, you must answer that question. Does their rejection indicate that God's promise is not sure and certain? So the first thing is, try to keep your eye upon the main theme. And do the smaller details under that main overarching purpose. 
The second thing is to note in a passage, again, this is true generally, is there a particular theme that recurs in the context itself? So this is not, not, the, not the big overarching context, but now a theme in the section itself. Well, I want to suggest to you in these verses there is. And that subsidiary theme is the theme of the children of God. Look at how that recurs. Verse number 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So this idea, this terminology of the children of God now come to, comes to the surface. Why does Paul choose that particular language? Well, because the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was a covenant made with them and their seed. So how do you deal with this issue of the physical seed of Abraham now rejecting Christ? And Paul, and we'll see this very soon, Paul is making the point that the children of God are those who are born spiritually, not born through physical inheritance. You see, turn back to chapter 8, because Paul, in using the language of the children of God, is not bringing a new concept into this epistle. He's already dealt with it in some detail in Romans chapter 8. Look at verse number 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, who are they? They are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bear the witness with our spirit, what? That we are the children of God. And so you, you see in the initial chapter, the earlier chapter already, that Paul has said the children of God are those who are spirit-infilled. And the Spirit of God is bearing witness with their spirit that they are the children of God. And then verse 17, and if children, then heirs. That's so significant to the Jewish reader. Who, who are the children of God? Well, they're heirs. They're heirs of the promises made to Abraham. But in Romans 8, it's a spiritual heritage. They are children born of the Spirit of God. And so in that theme, back in Romans chapter 9, as Paul is opening this theme out to your minds, he uses two illustrations. He makes the point that when it comes to Isaac, it is Isaac and not Ishmael, who is the child of the promise. It is Jacob and not Esau, who is the child according to the promise. And he's making the point that the children are a spiritual offspring. That even in the Old Testament, there were those of the physical offspring of Abraham who were not recipients of the spiritual promise. That's so important. What's happening in Paul's day is not something new. It's not new for there to be rejection of God's promises in the New Testament as if all the people of God in the Old Testament had believed. There was a spiritual line in Old Testament Israel as much as there was in Gospel Age Israel. We'll come back to these things, but we should note that the true Israel of God exists within ethnic Israel. I'm using Israel here in two different ways. 
there is a true Israel and there is a national Israel. Verse 6 says this, For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And so using the term Israel in two different ways is not novel and convenient. It's the language of Paul himself. Again, I understand there's, again, some confusion in this regard and always has been. There are those who suggest that one of the charges against, uh, again, if you like, Reformed theology is we believe in so-called replacement theology. We believe the church replaces Israel. No, we don't. We believe the church always was Israel, and Israel always was the church in the spiritual sense. That throughout from Adam all the way to now, there's been an Israel of God, those who believe in the promises of God. But that does not render thoughts of national Israel as being inappropriate. National Israel was a nation chosen of God in distinction from other nations. But within national Israel, there is this subset of believing Israel. So define your terms. But one term does not make the other term redundant. Believing in a believing Israel does not mean that national Israel is not important. And believing in national Israel does not undermine the importance of the church being part of the continuity of the true Israel of God. Now with Gentiles added in the promises of God in the new covenant. These are important things. Again, we'll come back to these things, but for now, please see that part of the answer to the matter of Jewish rejection is that God's promise in the covenant is a continuity of a spiritual seed. A spiritual seed is the continuity of the covenant. And God has kept his word in that regard. One commentator says this, God's word never promised salvation to all the biological descendants of Abraham. Salvation is never a birthright even for Jews, but always a gift of God's electing love. This isn't new. Yes, Messiah has come. There's now this decisive point in history of a decision that must be made. Is Jesus Messiah or is he not? That's a decision that must be made. But the idea of being believers and unbelievers in Israel is nothing new. It's been there from the beginning. Well, what's the third thing then? Well, the first thing, please note the main theme in the larger context. Secondly, is there an identifiable sub-theme? Yes, there is, the children of God. And thirdly, and this is so important when you think of Paul writing to Rome, and that is to note a literary device that he uses many times in this book. And it is the use of a placed question. Look at verse number 14. What shall we say then? What you see in Romans, and this is peculiar really to Romans and occurs other places, but particularly Romans, is that Paul, as he writes, engages in a hypothetical dialogue with people raising objections. Now, we didn't draw this out before, but we've seen it before, and we've noted it before. You turn back to chapter 3 
and the verse number 5. Let's note these, please. Chapter 3, verse 5, because if you're reading Romans carefully, you're going to see these things coming uh, time and time again. But if our righteousness commend the right, sorry, if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? God forbid. Again, not my purpose to explain that section. Just note the question. There's a question and an answer, and the answer gives details regarding the question. You see it also, chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then? That Abraham, our father, hath pertained to the flesh, hath found. What are you going to say? You know, if, if, this, if this salvation is by faith alone, well, is that true for Abraham, our father? Is a question asked. Chapter 6 and the verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Chapter 9, verse 14. We've just read chapter 9, verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? Different form there, but again the same pattern. And then chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? It's quite common, isn't it? When you see it work through these books, you see this is, this is quite a common structure. So how do we use it? Well, here's the clue. How you interpret the preceding verses should, humanly speaking, provoke this question. So you think of chapter 5, no condemnation, justified through his blood, and then the question comes, should we sin that grace may abound? The obvious question, well, if, if, if forgiveness is so free and it glorifies God's grace, should we not sin more and more and more so that grace may abound? You see, Paul is saying to to a rational man and to someone thinking carefully, what he said so far will lead to this question, which he then answers. And so it is in chapter 9. How you you interpret chapter 9 and these verses, verses 6 through to 13, ought to lead to the question, is that fair? That's what he's saying here. Is there unrighteousness with God? Is it not true, if this is true, Paul, that God must therefore be unjust and unfair? If your interpretation of the preceding verses does not lead to that, you have not properly interpreted the preceding verses. So how do you get there? How do you get to that? It's not fair. The only way you get to the it's not fair charge is by interpreting these verses in terms of the sovereign electing purpose of God. God has mercy on whom he has mercy in the freedom of his sovereign eternal electing choice. And thus, the passage must mean that the sovereign electing purpose of God guarantees his mercy to those he chooses to save, making them the children of God. This mercy eternally chosen of God, that mercy was then in time shown to some, indeed many within national Israel. His word was true then, 
and remains true in Paul's day, chapter 11, verse 5, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So God's word has not fallen away. It is not of non-effect because eternally God has been exercising his sovereign purpose and choice. How is that fair, God? Well, that's next week. But for now, please note the veil pulled back into the will and the ways of God in saving sinners. Old Testament and New Testament, Jews and Gentiles, whoever they be, were simply in chapter 9 dealing with the Jew, but the princes are true in the larger context of Jews and Gentiles alike. God saves people, Jew and Gentile, the very same way, with trust in the same Messiah. So tonight... Who are the children of God? Or if I can make it personal to you, how did you come to be a child of God? What was it that led to you being able to cry out, Abba, Father? Well, you'll see in your outline again in the bulletin, there are three negatives and three positives. There are three things that does not make you a child of God. And then there are three positives that do make you a child of God. And we'll go through these things very quickly. First of all, please note that you are not a child of God because of your heritage. Verse number seven. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. This principle that you don't become a child of God through physical heritage is illustrated again, as I said, through Isaac and then through Jacob and Esau. The Isaac one is, is, is significant. You look at how he refers to that in verse number 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And that's a, a quotation from Genesis chapter 21 and the verse number 12. Again, it has to do with the issue of Ishmael. And Abraham's plan to see the promise of God brought to pass through Hagar and the birth of Ishmael. And in response to that, God says unto Abraham, Genesis 21, verse 12, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad, Ishmael and Hagar, being cast out. And because of thy bondwoman, in all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. And here's the quotation. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now what we see here is the right of God to make distinctions between men in his sovereignty. He has a sovereign right to distinguish between Ishmael and Isaac. And you see in this section that right at the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant which then grows into the covenant of grace, in the new, sorry, into the new covenant, in the covenant of grace, in that beginning of the Abrahamic covenant, not all of Abraham's physical seed were in the promise of God. By the time you get to Jeremiah 31, and the words of the new covenant, you see this worked out and fleshed out in more detail. Because one of the promises of the new covenant is that they shall all know me. This covenant is not according to the covenant made with their fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, Jeremiah 31. It's a continuity, but there is distinction. And one of the distinctions 
is that there will not be in the new covenant a mixed multitude. In the old covenant, there were those born of Abraham who did not know the Lord. And so within the community of Israel, you could live in Bethlehem and you could go next door and knock your neighbor's door and say, you know what? You're a sinner and you need to know the Lord. Old covenant. There were those who did not know the Lord in that community. And so you see it here in the very beginning of Genesis 21. That in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That's proven secondly by the example then of Jacob and Esau. But before we get there, let me pause and just note how powerful an illustration Isaac is. The birth of Isaac, says one man, was by promise. Without a miracle, it would never have taken place. The birth of Ishmael was not by promise, but in the ordinary course of nature. He makes this conclusion. Ishmael is a type of those who are born after the flesh and are carnal men. Isaac is a type of those who are born of the Spirit and are the children of God. He said, yeah, this is nothing novel. You examine the teaching of Christ Jesus. The teaching of John the Baptist. And there was the understanding that though the Jews would rest upon their heritage, that foundation was sand. You see, look please at Matthew chapter 3. You'll see here again in the early events of the gospel times in John the Baptist's ministry. There were those, John's baptizing there at the Jordan. And there were those who come of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse number 7. Verse 8 says this. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. The presumption of saving grace because of physical heritage was undercut by John the Baptist in his ministry. Just because they were the children of Abraham did not mean they were the children of God. The same is also taught, of course, by Christ himself in John chapter 8. You turn across there, John chapter 8. Again, a dialogue that takes place again with the Lord and the Jewish leaders. You have verse number 37. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. Verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. So what is it? They are Abraham's seed, but they are not Abraham's children. Which is it? Well, the Lord himself is making the point that there are those of the physical lineage of Abraham, but they're not of the faith of Abraham. They don't know Abraham's gods, and they're still in their sins. In fact, over the page in my Bible, the Lord says to them, verse number 44, Year off your father, the devil. Couldn't be starker that there were those of the physical lineage of Abraham, and yet the devil is their father. They're not the children of God, but yet they are the seed of Abraham. You see, as Paul will say, we look across to Romans chapter 2, 
For he is not a Jew, Romans 2, verse 28. He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is of that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God's. So there's such a thing as a true Jew. Not outward, but inward circumcision, marked by the rebirth and regeneration. He's come to faith in Christ Jesus. Say again, please be so careful here. When he says he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, he is not denying the existence of physical national Israel. He's not saying that. Romans 9 through 11 makes it clear that there must be an entity of national Israel for his argument to make any sense in those chapters. So don't take chapter 2 out of the context of all of Romans. Romans 9 is making it clear there are two separate ways to use the term Israel or Jew. There are those who are the children of God, spiritually born of God, and there are those who are the seed of Abraham. Both can be true. Define your terms. Don't use one to deny the other. I love the way John Flevel puts it. He says this, and please make this, make this a thought of your mind right now. He says this, if Abraham's faith be not in your hearts, it will be no advantage that Abraham's blood runs through your veins. You can have the very best of heritage, but if you don't trust in Abraham's God with Abraham's faith, then your heritage is of no benefit. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, for ye are all the children of God, by faith in Christ Jesus. So what is Paul's point in Romans 9? It is that the true children of God, the true Israel of God, believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And thus as such, they are the children of God. Some national Jews indeed are true Jews, including Paul himself. So God has kept his promise there is a remnant, according to the election of grace, he's not, not failed to keep his promise. His old covenant promise holds true. And what was true in the Old Testament is true in the New Testament and is true today. I don't think any of you here are Jewish by lineage. So how does this apply to you? Well, it's simply a reminder that those who receive Christ are those who are born of God. And young people, let me remind you again, your parents cannot carry you to heaven. And their blood running through your veins does not mean you believe in their Christ. You must be born again. You personally must come to believe in Jesus Christ. Your heritage will avail nothing on the judgment day apart from rendering you worthy of stricter judgment for denying the privileges you knew in this place by being raised under gospel ministry under sea of parents. But you don't become the children of God by heritage. That's the long one of these three, by the way, just to comfort you. The next two are very brief. You don't become a child of God through personal desire. That's verse 16. So then, it is not of him that we don't choose to believe. 
end of our nature, we seek self and don't seek God. I refer already to John chapter 1 in the quotation there. Again, those who receive Christ, they are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. I understand that when you came to Christ Jesus, you actually believed in the gospel. But you did not choose to desire to believe in the gospel. That desire was wrought in you by the Spirit of God in the rebirth. And the children of God do not get there by their own free will. It is the sovereign will of God that brings us to faith in Christ Jesus. It's not by heritage. It's not by personal desire. And of course, it's not by religious effort. Verse 11, using Jacob and Esau as the example. For the children being not yet born, having neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Verse 16, it is not, and again we see it already, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. The will is the choice, the running is the action. In other words, it's not by our religious works that we get to become the children of God. We always need that reminder. We don't get there by our works. We don't stay here by our works. It's all of God. It's all of His grace. Why is it such a dominant theme in the Scriptures? Because men seem to believe they can earn the favor of God by their religious works. Every false religion Jewish, Islamic, Hindu, whatever it may be, every other false religion, it rests upon man's effort. It rests upon the thought that man can do something, maybe small, maybe great, but something to earn the favor of God. So those are the three negatives. You know them. I trust they're reinforced in this passage in your mind. But what about the positives? What does occur for us to become the children of God? Well, there are these three positives also in this passage. First of all, by God's sovereign grace, we are chosen of God. Look at verse 10. And here I'm going to turn to the example now of Jacob and Esau. Because Paul says, verse 10, and not only this, not only is Isaac proof of the spiritual seed, but also Rebekah, when she conceived by one, by her father Isaac, and then you have the parenthesis in verse number 11, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And that language is used to illustrate the point in the parenthesis, verse number 11, that it is the purpose of God according to election that must stand. And so Jacob and Esau are used by Paul as illustrative of the truth of divine sovereign election and the free sovereign choice of God. And so Jacob and Esau are used to prove, verse number 6, they're being used to prove that all Israel are not of Israel. That was true for Isaac and Ishmael, and that's also true for Jacob and Esau. They're, They're being used to show that though Israel had rejected Jesus, Messiah, 
God still had an elect people to save. That's chapter 11, verse 5, the remnant according to the election of grace. So it's pointed out that God explains the contest in Rebecca's womb. Now here, please, I'm going to take about a couple minutes here just to make, uh, just to make some comments regarding objection to this passage. You see, there are some who say, verse 13, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, should be interpreted only in national terms. But it does not relate to the election of the individual. They say this passage, it proves the point that God has nations in mind. He chose Israel and not Edom. But it doesn't have any bearing upon the individual's salvation. And they use this to undercut the idea of divine sovereign election of an individual to salvation. Well, how did they get there? Well, Genesis chapter 25, turn there initially, Genesis 25. Because I want to say this, this idea is not without foundation. There are, there are evidences in the Word of God to point in that direction. Genesis 25, verse 23. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. That's the very thing that Paul is using in Romans chapter 9. He quotes that verse. But the early part of the verse says, Two nations are in thy womb. Then turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. And we see the same thing over Malachi. Sorry, Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith... And so without going into the details of Malachi, I'm just simply using the point that in their minds, Jacob and Esau, out of them did come nations, Israel and Edom, and they say, well, here, election is only for the nations. It's not describing the sovereignty of God in the individual. So how do we answer that? Well, Romans chapter 9. Back in Romans chapter 9, Paul is dealing with the issue, again, of the wholesale rejection of Jesus as the Messiah by national Israel. But his burden is for individuals within national Israel. His concern is that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, would be converted. Verse number 3 of chapter 9. He prays for them. Chapter 10, verse number 1. And when you work your way down all through the passage, as we will, you will see that the terms that are used are terms of the individual. Verse 19. Why doth he yet find fault for not the nation hath resisted his will, but the individual hath resisted his will. Verse 16, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Again, language of the individual. 
Remember again the point of verse number 19? Is this unfair? That becomes because people recognize that God sovereignly has chosen some to salvation and not others. Therefore, the question naturally arises, is there unrighteousness with God? See, these are certainly challenging things. But this illustration of Jacob and Esau is used by the Apostle Paul here to prove the principles regarding sovereign divine election. It is in love. Jacob have I loved. It takes us back to what we saw in Romans chapter 8 and the verse number 29, for whom he did foreknow for love. Election comes in the sovereign love of God. And it is entirely unconditional. Verse 11, the children being not yet born, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. This is a strong proof text, the doctrine of divine unconditional election and sovereign love. You see, in a day of individual power and autonomy, people raised in free will churches, Romans 9 is difficult. It is. It's a really difficult passage. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. I will have mercy, and whom I'll have mercy, and whom I will, he'll harden. Really, really difficult verses. But the issue is that men will not let God be God. They refuse to let God be the God of the Bible. And they have in their imagination a God that is not like the one revealed in the Word of God. But we trust in the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not easy. But you know what's true? Jacob and Esau were equally in their sin. Jacob and Esau, both born in Adam, both born of Adam's sinful race. Jacob and Esau, equally objects of hatred as God hates sin. Born in the sin nature, equally the objects of God's divine, just hatred for sin. That God hates Esau is no surprise. That God loves and shows mercy to Jacob, that is amazing grace. The surprise is Jacob have I loved. We are the children of God because of God's sovereign choice. Secondly, we're the children of God because of God's sovereign compassion. His compassion. I just want you to note the word. Verse 15, I will have compassion. Please note the words, I will. That is a statement of God's determinative choice. I will choose to have compassion on those who do not deserve compassion. Dear child of God, you're alive today. You live for a time in your sin, maybe three years, maybe 33 years. You lived in a time in your sin, but over your head through those years were the words of God over your head, I will have compassion. I will show mercy. That individual deserves to be cast into the deepest fires of hell. 
but I will have compassion. Wonderful compassion of God. Thirdly, we are then those who are called sovereignly of God. That's mentioned again in verse number 11, but of him that calleth. It's also mentioned in the quotation of Isaac in verse number 7, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. I'm looking back over a sermon on the effectual call. We did that in the chapters, in Romans chapter 8. We saw the effectual call of God. It is the work of God internally in the heart of a man to draw them to Christ Jesus. It is the effectual call of God that leads us to faith in Christ. And it is by faith in Christ that we are the children of God. Galatians 3 again, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Oh, what a glorious thing it is. I'm a child of the King. I'm a child of God. Not because of my birthright, but because of God's sovereign work in my soul. The rebirth has brought me to faith in Christ. And I'm now a child of the King, indwelt by the Spirit of God. And I cry, Abba, Father. And I'm an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ. And my home is in heaven. These are glorious graces of God. And it's all of God. Nothing of man. Nothing of self. Nothing earned. It is a call to humble, thankful worship. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. It's a call, dear unsaved soul, tonight. It's a call to faith in Christ Jesus. You know, if this passage points out two things, it points out, yes, the sovereignty of God in election. But at the same time, it points out the absolute necessity of faith in Christ Jesus. If you reject Christ, you're lost. If you receive Christ, you're saved. Dear child, dear older person, repent and believe the gospel tonight. There is no salvation outside of Christ. It's not found in any nation or any family or any religious order or religious works. Salvation is only found in the person of Christ. So run to Christ tonight. Get to Christ and be saved tonight. Don't die in your sins. Go to a lost eternity. Let's close, please, in prayer. Let's seek God's face as we close tonight in prayer. Eternal God and Father, we're mindful again that we're, we're wading through some deep waters. But they are the waters that you've given to us in the Word. And therefore, we understand them to be for our spiritual benefit. Help us to understand your word. Help us to apply the word carefully. Help us, O Lord, to take it to your homes tonight. And simply say, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Why was I? Why was I brought to that feast? When others make that wretched choice and rather starve than come. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness and sovereign grace. We bow at your feet. We worship you. We pray, O oh God, for grace to live humbly, to walk in your fear. May your favor rest and abide upon us. We pray again in Jesus' name. Amen.